Hello, my name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm an assistant professor of physical therapy at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. Um, welcome to the second podcast in the series of uh, beginner vestibular rehabilitation. Uh, today we'll be talking about performing a vestibular evaluation. Um, as you remember, our last podcast we talked about taking vestibular history, and this is where you would pick up with the evaluation after um, completing a history. Um, I have a fellow vestibular therapist on the line. Her name is Sarah McDowell. Sarah, I'll have you introduce yourself and give a brief background. Great. My name is Sarah McDowell. I am a physical therapist here in uh, Louisiana as well in Baton Rouge at Our Lady of the Lake Hospital. I work in our Hearing and Balance Center, so I treat almost exclusively patients with vestibular and balance disorders. Um, before that, I did work in both inpatient and outpatient neurological rehab settings, so I have some experience with both of those as well, um, and where I am right now is in, in the outpatient clinic. However, I also do some evaluations in the acute care setting because we are connected to a hospital. Great. Thank you for joining me today, Sarah. Um, so after taking a history, you, I think you can do one of two things with patients, and of course this is depending on the history. Um, if the patient is giving me a very strong history to suggest BPPD, typically what I'll do is I will test cervical range of motion um, just to make sure they're within functional limits. Just a very quick screen, no need to get up a fancy goniometer or inclinometer. Um, and I also check a modified vertebral artery test, again, to help with a differential diagnosis from vertebral basilar insufficiency um, versus BPDV. Um, and then uh, if everything's all clear, I will do um, the positional testing for BPDV. Um, the most common type of BPDV you'll see out there is in the posterior canal, and the test for that is the Dex hall pipe test. Um, some of the tests that we're going to be talking about today are very difficult to describe over the phone. Um, so what you may want to do, the best resource to look at for videos of the various testing items um, is the video CD which is provided with the Susan Herdman text on vestibular rehab. Uh, there's currently the third edition is the most current edition. Um, you can, if you don't want to purchase an additional textbook, the cheaper way is to look at YouTube. If you look at Dick's Hallpike testing or any of the other ocular motor testing we'll talk about, I do want to caution you, however, be very wary of references that you do see on YouTube as anyone can post there and it's not reviewed as effectively as a textbook is. Um, but if you have no other option, that's certainly a better option than um, none. Uh, so to do the Dick's Hallpike test, you turn the patient's head, have the patient in a long sit position um, and have them uh, lay backwards, extending their head and neck um, over the mat about 40, uh, 30 to 45 degrees. Um, when you do that, you're looking for two things for the test to be positive. Um, those two things are a nystagmus pattern, um, which typically with posterior canal is going to be a rotary nystagmus, so you'll see the eye turning, um, and with combination of an upward nystagmus. Um, and this will occur most typically um, with the ear that is in the down position. Um, the other positional testing that you can do if you suspect horizontal canal is a roll testing in which you have the patient supine and flex their neck about 30 degrees. And then um, you will turn together 
um, about 70 to 90 degrees to the right or to the left. And then to the nystagmus pattern, you'll see associated that will be geotropic or ageotropic nystagmus because it's named, um, but you'll see nystagmus in a horizontal um, direction. Again, video is a really great reference to look at the nystagmus patterns and also to look at um, the to test themselves and what to do. And think about, you know, maybe what you did in your physical therapy labs as well. Um, Sarah, do you have anything to add in terms of the oculomotor or position testing? Um, and also keep in mind, we'll talk about the treatment um, in next month's podcast of these disorders. Just want to hit on the testing today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a good brief description of the positional testing. The one thing I'd like to talk about just for a second is um, when your patients come in, you're taking this thorough history, and I, that first podcast was excellent. Um, and you can kind of pick up these patients who you believe are having BPPV because they're the ones that are having this episodic vertigo um, brought on by these gravity-dependent conditions such as lying down in bed or bending over. But just don't forget that a lot of your elderly patients will not have that same experience. They often do not put themselves in these provoking positions. So they may be complaining primarily of imbalance. So I generally tend to, I don't know what you do, Rachel, I tend to perform a Dix-Hall Pike on almost all of the elderly patients that come in, um, or if there's anything that suggests a car accident, anything that suggests some sort of trauma, where I want to make sure that we have ruled out BPPV before I proceed with everything else. Um, correct, Sarah. I do the same exact thing. Also, because the prevalence of BPPV in individuals over the age of 65, just in the general community, is estimated at 9%. It's my general rule that anyone over the age of 65, because the test is so quick, I automatically test them anyway. If it's negative, it really does take, you know, just about a minute to a minute and a half. And I've definitely caught some people who I would not who are not complaining of typical symptoms, but I've caught them and been able to treat them with it. Absolutely. Um, so if your patient, if you don't think they have BPPV and you think they have another kind of vestibular disorder, what I do instead of doing the positional testing is I go in and do ocular motor testing. Now, ocular motor testing, this could be a whole weekend course in and of itself. And again, it's a very difficult thing to describe on the phone. So your best reference for this is the Susan Herdman text um, and a lot of the videos, the pictures that describe the testing. Um, and, you know, a, a reference, but not, of course, the ideal, of course, is um, YouTube as well. Um, but the main things that you want to check for in ocular motor testing are ocular motor range of motion, um, spontaneous nystagmus, gaze holding nystagmus, mood pursuit, saccades, uh, slow head thrust, and a fast head thrust for a head impulse. Um, and all, and those, you know, again, I would consider standard entry level tests. Of course, there are many other tests, but I would consider them beyond entry level. So if you really get into vestibular rehab, um, know that there are more tests to learn and there are extra things that you can do. Um, for ocular motor range of motion, the purpose is to see if your patient has a baseline ophthalmotrophia or ophthalmoplegia. This will affect outcomes. Um, so actually, in order to do all of the ocular motor testing, the most comfortable position is for the patient to be seated and you to be seated as well. Um, and you guys are at about the same eye level. Um, 
also before doing these tests, you want to make sure that neck range of motion is within functional limits because you're going to be um, moving the patient quickly from time to time. Um, the purpose overall of doing ocular motor testing in a vestibular evaluation is to help find in general where the lesion is going to be. Certain tests are associated with central vestibular lesions and positive results in other tests are associated with um, peripheral vestibular lesions. Obviously, you don't want to interpret one test in isolation because there's not 100% sensitivity or specificity associated with these tests, especially when um, you know done in normal light. Um, so you want to take the interpretation of these tests with your history and your other exam findings to help lead you down the road of differential diagnosis. Um, the tests which are associated with central uh, vestibular problems, if you see a positive response, maybe indicative of a central vestibular dysfunction, are um, smooth pursuits, if they are positive, saccades, if they are positive, um, and if you get what's called a direction-changing nystagmus, whereas if you have the patient look to the left and you see a left-beating nystagmus, and you have them look to the right and you see a right-beating nystagmus. Or anytime you see a vertical nystagmus, oh, that is definitely a central issue. Tests that tend to be positive um, that indicate peripheral dysfunction are, of course, absence in central finding. Um, with the gaze holding nystagmus, if you have the patient look to the left, you see a left beating nystagmus. If you have the patient look to the right, and you see a left beating nystagmus, tends to be indicative of peripheral dysfunction. Um, also, the VOR fast head thrust or head impulse test, um, that is indicative of unilateral peripheral dysfunction. If you, as you remember from class, um, the fast head thrust, you kind of wiggle the patient's head a little to loosen them up and then turn them quickly to one side or the other. If you see their, and the instructions are the patient's to focus on your nose. If you see their eyes um, come back to the nose with a head thrust to the right, that's indicative of right-sided um, dysfunction versus if you see uh, a corrective saccade or their eyes take a second to come back with head thrust to the left, it's indicative of a left-sided dysfunction or left-sided weakness. Now, keep in mind the sensitivity and the specificity, I believe, is about 75%, and that's if you do it perfectly. So you may not see this 100% of the time, but again, helps lead you down that route. Um, Sarah, is there anything um, that I missed that you think you'd like to include? Um, I think I think the basic testing is is pretty thorough. Uh, I just want to caution, especially newer therapists, that if you're getting a patient who is already seen an ENT, an otolaryngologist, or a neurotologist, they may come with some prior testing from the uh, from the clinic there. And some of the testing overlaps with some of these bedside screens we're doing. So I caution you to not overinterpret your results if you do have uh, testing, you know, objective measures available to you. And it's something that can be intimidating to try to read these tests, but the more you practice with it and look at it, you'll get better with them. And a lot of them kind of duplicate what we're testing for. So I always, I do like to repeat them in the clinic, but I also defer back to the, uh, the testing I've gotten from the physician if it's available. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, in terms of what Sarah said, I agree 100%. I also look at the source of where it's coming from. If, if it's yeah. the, Sarah, Sarah and I work with the same physician in Baton Rouge who is an excellent physician. The audiologists working with him are excellent. So anything that comes to me from him, I tend to believe. 
if there's a physician that I know is maybe newer to this um, or an audiology practitioner that is newer, you know, and I'm seeing a discrepancy finding, again, I, I would go back and maybe have that conversation and try and sort out what really is going on with the patient. Um, again, hard to describe some of these tests um, on the phone, so your best reference is to look at that Herdman text and look at the videos um, or find a therapist who can help you uh, with completing some of these tests. Um, the next now, Rachel, part of the sorry, do you do the dynamic visual acuity test at this point, or um, I do, but I tend to not teach that as much for my students because I think that's a, a little bit beyond okay. entry level and beyond the basics. But maybe since you brought it up, there, if you'd like to discuss it, yeah. it might be good. A little land yet. Sure, sure. This is just one test that I find helpful because we'll talk later about goal writing, and this is a test that you can see some change with, so I think it's very helpful for goal writing. It's just dynamic visual acuity. There are some computerized modules for this. However, we do it in the clinic, and it's, it's quite easy. You actually just use an eye chart. It's, it's not the common smell and eye chart. It's actually the ETDRS eye chart, and you can just Google that, and you can find it online. And then what we do is just take a metronome and set it at 240 beats per minute, which is a quite a fast beat, and then the patient is sitting back whatever distance from the chart, the chart itself, the size of the chart dictates, and you begin turning their head, in, or actually first you'd have them read with their head in a static position, have them read the lowest line they're able to see, and that is just kind of their baseline static visual acuity, and then you start moving their head at this very fast pace of 240 beats a minute, and you see how low they can read with their head moving, um, greater than three lines. Uh, difference between static and dynamic is considered abnormal. So and I find this is helpful a lot of times with our patients who who can't quite get a grasp of what you mean when you say gaze stability and that you need to work on this. Um, this is a quite uh, of a dramatic way to show them, you know, you should be able to read these lines with your head moving and you're having a lot of difficulty with it. Yep, a very, very good and very effective test and um, definitely one that I do in the clinic as well. Um, so after talking about the ocular motor, after finishing that with patients, um, again, of course, depending on the patient, um, remember first, I think sometimes, especially newer practitioners, and I remember when I was a newer vestibular therapist, you know, I'd get really into all the vestibular stuff, and I'd forget, oh, yeah, there's other physical therapy things that you have to do. So remember going off your HOAC, your hypothesis-oriented model, and keep in mind that you're a physical therapist first and vestibular therapist second. So if the patient is um, describing any sensory changes, if you notice anything that looks like a strength limitation, here I'll commonly do sensory tests, either a light touch or a sharp dull um, or proprioception if indicated. And I'll also do manual, test, manual muscle testing and range of motion screen, again, if indicated. I tend to look at the patient functionally um, as they're ambulating and moving, um, and if I see an impairment or if they complain of a strength impairment, I'll do I'll formally go back and do testing for that, um, with also with posture as well into the same area. Um, so next, after we look at all that stuff, uh, typically what we would do next is get the patient up and evaluate their gait and evaluate their balance. So I'll have Sarah talk about the options and what tests are good and how you would evaluate their balance and gait. Absolutely. So when we're thinking about balance, I often start with, with dividing it up between our static balance test and our dynamic balance test. I tend to begin with the static test because they're, they're quite simple and you can do them right where you are. Uh, there's several different different tests you can do. So you have to think about your patient and what you're, you're looking for and also the level of imbalance your patient has. And you can normally figure this out simply by watching them 
get back to your gym from the waiting room. You can tell if they're, they're pretty significantly off balance or if you're going to need to find a more challenging test to really show where their deficits are. So um, some of the different tests you can do, of course, are just your basic ones. The Romberg test, um, which is just standing with your feet touching, heels and toes touching, arms crossed over your chest with eyes open and eyes closed. Um, sharpened Romberg, which is just a tandem position. Um, same thing, arms crossed over your chest, eyes open, eyes closed. Uh, these tests are kind of challenging because there's some discrepancy in terms of if there's normative data for these, and your older adults might have a more challenging time. Um, like the tandem position, eyes closed, you wouldn't expect an elderly patient to be able to do that. Uh, another one is just single limb stance. Same thing, one foot up in the air, legs are not allowed to touch. Arms crossed over your chest, both eyes opened and eyes closed. Um, for this one, I do believe there is normative data, so I will often look back to that um, to compare my patients and see if they're falling um, at the age-appropriate level for these, these tests. So that's just a quick battery of very simple testing. Um, another one that is very, very commonly used is the CAT-SID, or the Clinical Test of Sensory Integration and Balance, which is the old kind of foam and dome test that was first developed by Shumway Cook and Horak. Uh, I think that was back in 1986 was the original CATSIB and it's since then been modified. So the original one did actually use the, um, the dome over the patient's head. That part has been taken out. So the, the modified version has four parts and this actually includes the Romberg testing. So I often do this instead because you're gonna get the um, Romberg testing in with this. So the first one is just simply Romberg position, feet together arms crossed over your chest, eyes open, and you're gonna time them. The full test is 30 seconds. If they lose their balance before 30 seconds, you mark the time and you'll give them three trials. If they ever get to 30 seconds, you can stop there. The first position, like I said, was Romberg, arms crossed over your chest, eyes open. The second position is Romberg, eyes closed. The third one is standing on a foam pad in that Romberg position with eyes open, and the fourth one is the Romberg on foam, eyes closed. For each of these, you would give them three trials. You can average out their score for each trial, as well as get an average for the entire test. Um, the last one that I think of commonly with these kind of static balance tests is, of course, the sensory organization test on the Neurocom. However, that's a very expensive piece of equipment, and if you're in a clinic that's not doing a lot of this testing yet, that might be a little bit more than your clinic wants to spend. The good news is, is that the um, CAT-SIB test and the sensory organization test, which is very similar, have been found to correlate with each other. So I think the CAT-SIB is a very quick and easy way to get a very good look at their balance and the different uses of the visual, vestibular, and somatosensory input without having to have very expensive equipment. Of course, if you have a sensory organization test available to you, it is also useful. Um, Rachel, do you have anything else for the static testing? Um, just a couple of points. Of course, I agree with um, everything that you say. In terms of, say, I'm talking about using normative data um, to compare your patient to normal, it's really great to turn that normative data into a goal. Um, so, for example, if normally your patient should be able to do a single limb stance, According to their age, if they should be able to do it for 30 seconds, boom, there's your long-term goal. It's a really easy way um, to come up with and write effective long-term goals. Also, Sarah talked about how elderly adults have a really difficult time, excuse me, 
in the tandem position. I've also found that they also have a very difficult time in single limb stance, and their um, normative data numbers for that once you get into the 70s and the 80s uh, do start to fall. Um, and you know, the other thing to keep in mind when you're doing the modified uh, cat sib in terms of the cushion is not all cushions are created equal. If you have the best cushion, an ideal cushion to use, is the one that comes with the Neurocom system. That can be purchased separately for about 200 to $250, which you're thinking, wow, that's really expensive for a cushion. But it's a wonderful cushion because the patient's feet are not supposed to bottom out and touch the floor at all. And that cushion is very thick. And I find a huge difference within the clinic when I have my patients stand on that cushion versus just a pillow or some other piece of foam. Um, so that is one, if you're doing that test a lot and doing a lot of training, I strongly encourage you um, to purchase that cushion. Okay, great. Uh, so now, Sarah, how about you talk about some of the dynamic balance testing that you do? Sure, yeah. So um, there's a lot of dynamic balance testing. I think we could do several podcasts just on this topic alone. Mm-hmm. So I'll try to be fairly brief. Um, there are several different tests. Um, I t- generally tend to start with the ones that are in a small space, and then I move to the bigger area where I do the walking test. That's kind of the way my brain works. That's the order I'll go in. Um, one of the ones, and it's, it is very common in the vestibular world, but we didn't learn a lot about it in physical therapy school, was the Fakuda stepping test um, in which the patient sticks their arms out in front of them. They close their eyes and march in place for about 30 steps, and you're watching to see if they turn greater than 30 degrees either to the right or to the left. Um, this test can be indicative of um, a vestibular lesion. However, um, it has fairly poor sensitivity and specificity, and it doesn't have good directional preponderance, meaning if the patient turns 30 degrees to the right, that does not mean that they have a right-sided vestibular lesion. So this test is one that I will sometimes do, um, Definitely depending on your setting, if you're in an acute or an inpatient setting, not many of your patients will be able to stand and close their eyes and march anyway. So this test is is only useful at times, but it can be one piece of information for you. Another test that I sometimes do is the functional reach test. I think this is excellent for our older adults, the patients who I think are at high risk for falls or during the history are telling me they're having falls. This is a test I really like, Um, and as Rachel mentioned earlier, this is a very good one to write uh, write goals about. And so what they do is you'll have a tape measure up against the wall about shoulder height for the patient, and they stand with their shoulder towards the wall, not touching, but, but towards it, and they stick their arm out, the arm that's next to the wall out right in front of them with their hand in a fist. You measure where their uh, third knuckle is along the tape measure, and then you ask them to reach as far forward as they can without actually taking a step. They're actually bending at their waist and reaching forward, like they're reaching for something way back in the back of their pantry, is what I tell them. And then you'll measure that distance. And there is fall risk data. Um, You are looking for them to be able to reach, I believe it's 10 inches? It is correct, Uh, 10 inches, or 10 10 inches, the fall cutoff. Okay. I believe that, yeah, it was the fall cutoff. And so, like I said, this is easy to write a goal about. If they're unable to reach that level, then that's something you can work on with your treatment and write a goal for later. Um, and that's the functional reach test. Um, I don't know if I have. Do you have a reference on that one? Oh, I, I do. It'll take me just a little bit to pull out. <laughs> I might yeah, I might be able to come up with it, but um, maybe a Duncan et al. in 1992. 
keep keep we'll, talking we'll on the other stuff, and then I'll I'll interrupt with Come that. back to that one. Okay, fabulous. So that's the functional reach test. The other ones that I go to are are more geared towards walking or data assessment tests. Um, one that is very commonly used is just the timed up and go, the simple tug. And what this one is is the patient is sitting in a chair with arms, and then what you'll have them do is you will tell them when to stand up, and you'll have them walk as uh, quickly and safely as they can a distance of three meters. They turn around and return to the chair and sit. So you will start your timer as soon as you say the word go. So they'll still be in the sitting position when you start the test. And then you stop the timer when they've actually sat back down. Um, this test is very, very commonly used, uh, and it's very easy to perform. You don't need a lot of equipment for it. And again, th there is normative data for this one, so it's helpful. The other thing that you can use with this one is a fall cutoff of 11.1 seconds for vestibular patients. Um, that was that was a cutoff that's been found. So that's a pretty easy test to do and gives you some quick data, and again, can be some easy goal writing. Okay, and Sarah, I have those references for you for the functional reach test. Um, you were correct. Functional reach test is Duncan from Journal of Gerontology, 1990. Um, another test that's very similar to that is the multidirectional reach test, uh -huh. where the patient um, reaches both uh, forwards, backwards, to the left, and to the right. Um, and that the reference to that is, again, the Journal of Gerontology from 2001, and it's uh, Roberta Newton. Okay, Sarah, go on. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was the timed up and go. And I'll briefly talk about, about the other options with the timed up and go. There is a cognitive variation where you actually have the patient counting backwards by three while they're performing that same task. So you're trying to see if they can have a divided attention and maintain their balance while they're walking. The other option is the manual version, and this is where they actually pick up a cup of water and walk while holding this cup of water during the test. So sometimes these are a little ways to challenge it. If their patient is doing okay on the times up and go, you might want to see how they do with these extra challenges. Um, another real common test is the dynamic gait index. Um, and this is a test that has eight different walking conditions in it. Um, so you would tell the patient, you would read the patient the instructions, um, and I do caution you, especially if you're a newer um, therapist or new to these tests, to actually have this paper in your hand and be reading the instructions, because it is important that you keep it very standardized and you're reading the instructions the same each time to each patient. But it's eight different walking conditions, um, everything from just walking normal to changing your speed to turning your head um, to stepping around an obstacle and over an obstacle. And you score them each time on a four-point scale, zero being severe impairment, unable to do the task, all the way up to three, which is normal. Uh, there's a couple of reasons I like this test. One being they can use their assistive device if they, if they do use one, and they get scored down just a little bit for using it, so I think that's helpful. Um, the other reason I like this test is because you can shorten it and do the short form DGI, and that is just the first four items. So if, you know, sometimes I'm running out of time during an assessment, that, that short form of that four um, item DGI is a good way to get some quick um, data on a patient. This is, uh, they do have fall risk data. So for the full form, there's 24 possible points. Less than or equal to 19 correlates with a higher fall risk. 
And on the short form, there's only 12 possible points, and less than or equal to a 9 is indicative of fall risk. Um, this was first. This was developed by Anne Shumway Cook. I know it's in her textbook. Um, that, well. that's the, that is the first reference of, is in the okay. second edition of the Motor Learning Textbook. Okay. Rachel, do you have anything to add about DGI? Um, yeah, the one thing with the DGI is I agree 100% for inter-rater reliability, you should always have the form there and read the instructions verbatim. Um, and in terms of using these for clinical ease of use for objective forms is you know, keep these in a filing cabinet. I have a filing cabinet, and I have a folder that says DGI, a folder that says FGA, which we'll probably be talking about in a minute, um, a, you know, a folder that has um, sheets with its netty so that easily I can, you know, pull something, pull something out, and I have it right there at my fingertips. Um, the one really important thing to consider with the DGI is, yes, it does give you um, a spot to take off an account for use of an assistive device. Um, however, if you use an assistive device, the highest score that you can get is a 17 out of 24. Um, the drawback to this is that it is that you are still a fall risk even if you use an assistive device. We know that many of our vestibular patients, if they come to us with an assistive device initially, it is our goal to take them off that device. Um, however, if you anticipate that your patient won't be able to get off the assistive device for whatever reason, um, you won't be able to prove that your therapy has significantly decreased their fall risk. And that's a really important goal to make sure that you prove that, yes, the therapy is effective and I've taken my patient from being at risk of falls from being not at risk of falls. So for that reason, um, I tend to use my patients if I don't think they're going to um, wean off their assistive device. I would use the tug because it still allows them to use their assistive device, and they can still be considered not a fall risk if they get less than uh, 13 seconds on the tug um, while using that assistive device. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. And, and I do caution people, if the patient is using the assistive device and you choose to use the short form, I believe, if I'm correct, they actually can't score high enough to not be considered a fall risk. So that's one thing that I, I definitely try to avoid is either do the full form or, like Rachel mentioned, choose another test, such as the, the tug. Mm -hmm. um, the other test that Rachel had just mentioned was the FGA, which is the functional gait assessment. And this test I, I often choose for my patients who I think that the DGI might just be a little bit too easy for them because what it did is it took seven of the items from the dynamic gait index and kept those but also added three new items. So it added um, kind of a tandem walk, walking with your eyes closed, and walking backwards. And so sometimes for your patients, the DGI can have somewhat of a ceiling effect for your patients who are a little bit more high functioning. And at those times, I think that the FGA can be a little bit more appropriate. Um, and this test, less than or equal to 22, is indicative of, of fall risk. Um, Rachel, do you have anything about the difference you think between the DGI and the FGA? No, I tend to, ever since uh, I became familiar with the FGA, I tend to prefer much more over the DGI because I feel it is more objective. You also have, um, you time two items. You time um, their walking, both with their eyes open, and there's item eight, which is walking with their eyes closed, that you time as well. 
So it just is a little bit more objective than a DGI, which says patient walks at a slower than regular pace. Well, everyone's definition of slower than regular may be different, but with the timing, just gives you really good delineation. Um, also, using the timing of the FGA, you sort of kill two birds with one stone. You can calculate a gait speed um, off of that time, and as you know, as I'm sure it's been drilled into you in physical therapy school, you should be calculating gait speed on each and every single one of your patients. It is the sixth vital sign, um, and it is also indicative of many things, from fall risk to admission to nursing home to death. So on every single one of your patients, um, without exception, you need to be doing a gait speed measurement. Yeah, and I cannot, um, I guess, overemphasize the importance of getting that gait speed. I think it's excellent information. It's a great way um, to write goals. It just lends you to a lot of useful information. There is normative data available for gait speed, um, and it's just a very, very easy test to perform. And like Rachel mentioned, if you're already doing the FDA, it's included in part of that test. Mm -hmm. um, okay, um, another test. Go ahead. Oh, no, sorry, Sarah, go on. This is probably the last one I was going to talk about, but another test that I do sometimes for um, my, my elderly patients is, is the five-time sit-to-stand test because it's a good way to get kind of a functional strength assessment as well as their fall risk. And for this test, what they do is they will sit and stand uh, five times with their arms crossed from a chair just up and down as quickly as they can, and you time it. If um, if it's less than 13 seconds, then that is uh, is indicative of a balance dysfunction, and that can be a test again that is very easy for for goal writing, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later. Do you have anything else, Rachel? Um, no, one more thing that I forgot about in terms of the FGA. In addition to having a number predicted to the fall risk, there are age-related norm numbers. Um, right. So that's, again, really lends easily into writing your goals. If you have a patient um, who's in their uh, 40s, for example, the age-related norm is uh, about 20, 29 or 29.4. Um, so I would write a goal for a 29 out of 30. So it gives, gives you an idea of where to set those goals. Absolutely. And we keep talking about these tests and these data. I, one thing that I do is I have a sheet that's just a cheat sheet with almost every test I use and the normative data on there, age, gender, whatever is available. And I keep that with me in the clinic so that way it's just a real easy way to reference each test that I'm doing. So, you know, if this is something you're interested in, I think making yourself some sort of sheet or some way to reference this data very easily will make you use it more, and it really dramatically helps your goal writing. I agree, Sarah. Work smarter, not harder is always my motto. Right. Um, so let's talk for a couple of minutes about bringing it together. You've taken the history. You've done all these tests and measures. So how do you come up with a prognosis for the patient? Again, we could probably talk for a whole podcast or a series of podcasts on, you know, the different prognosises with the different um, with the different patient populations, but we're going to keep it really general today. Um, and again, if, you, if this is something that you are interested, by all means, go back and look over the Herdman textbook as a wonderful reference um, for it, or look at, at articles and, of course, in peer-reviewed publications. Um, in general, so you have vestibular dysfunction, you either have peripheral dysfunction or central dysfunction. The rule of thumb is for the peripheral disorders like BPPD, um, labyrinthitis, um, vestibular neuritis, 
um, acoustic neuroma or after a resection. For those diagnoses, the patient should be able to return to 100% complete function. Granted, you know, they didn't have any significant um, comorbidities, but they should, in terms of their walking, their employment, their recreational activities, they should get to be almost nor very, very little bit off normal or completely normal. Um, the time frame in general, of course, depends on the diagnosis, depends on the patient, but you're looking at in general about six to eight weeks. Um, central vestibular dysfunction is a whole different story. So with some of the central disorders we're talking about, you know, migraine-associated dizziness, um, post-concussive dizziness, stroke, uh, dizziness from MS or Parkinson's or any other um, type of central disorder. Um, the prognosis is not as great. You can definitely expect some improvement with your patients, and they will certainly benefit from physical therapy, um, but they might not get to be completely normal. And their therapy will take a lot longer, whereas for unilateral dysfunction, you're thinking six to eight weeks. For my central patients, I plan on at a minimum 12 weeks and I have gone up to a year and a half um, with a patient who had very, very severe um, post-concussive dizziness and imbalance um, after a head injury. So it really, of course, depends on your patient um, in terms of general prognosis and outcomes. Um, Sarah, anything else to add to that? Um, no, I think I think you just covered that. I mean, the other one is that you talked about just that peripheral being, you know, a little bit of a faster uh, recovery. And just think about what diagnosis you're treating. If it's one year that's infected a unilateral hypofunction, it's going to be a much quicker recovery than if it's both years, a bilateral hypofunction. And um, so just kind of keeping in mind what you're looking at, the patients will often ask you, how long is this going to take for me to get better? And so it's a good idea to have some, some sense in your mind of, of a prognosis for them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I also find it's very hard when you see them initially um, to come up with an exact prognosis. Um, I find if my patients are going to get better, they sometimes start to feel better by week one, and they definitely will start to feel better by week two or three. Um, so once I see sort of how quickly they start to get better, I'll have a um, better idea of a time frame to give them. So initially I might tell my patients, you know, it could be six weeks, but give me plus or minus two weeks either direction, and then by week two I'll be able to say, um, you know, with more certainty, oh, only three more weeks, or oh, you know what, we're maybe looking at five or six more weeks, So depending on how they're going to improve. And that's also a good rule of thumb. If your patient has been compliant with the exercises, doing everything that you're saying, and by week three they've had no improvement, then, and they're doing everything right, um, you know that most likely they're not going to show improvement with vestibular rehab. So you need to look at referring them back to the physician and going back and maybe seeing if there's further medical treatment or maybe they were misdiagnosed. Um, you need to investigate. You don't want to, um, you know, keep beating your head against the wall doing the same thing and expecting different results. As by week three they're not showing improvement, send them on back. Anything else to add there? I think I totally agree with all of that. Okay, great. So in terms of goal writing, I think um, both Sarah and I have discussed about use of objective measures and using that to establish your goals. We um, cannot emphasize importantly enough how, how important these objective measures are, not only in providing standard solid data for your patients to really justify the impairments that you're seeing and the extent, but that these are also really great for goal writing. 
be very familiar with the both the age-related norms and the cutoff on fall risk on all the balance um, tests that Sarah talked about and gait and walking speed. And guess what? You can turn that now into a goal. If the fall risk, the fall risk cutoff for the SGA is a 22 out of 30, then you should your goal should definitely be higher than that 22. Um, also, in terms of goals, sometimes busyness can be very subjective. It's a very hard thing to kind of um, you know put put a number to, but I do ask my patients their dizziness on a goal from 0 to 10, very similar to the pain scale, 0 being no dizziness, 10 being worst dizziness ever. So you can write a goal if the patient initially is maybe at a 5 out of 10 for their dizziness. Maybe your discharge goal is that they're at a 0 out of 10 dizziness or, you know, 1 out of 10 for dizziness, of course, depending on their diagnosis and their prognosis. And the other important thing that I like to do for goal writing, I think one of the best things about physical therapy as a profession is that we are so focused on the individual and their function is, you know, I find, you know, what is this dizziness stopping you from doing that you couldn't do before? If my patient was an avid bike rider, then guess what my goal is going to be? You know, patient will ride bikes for 60 minutes with 1 out of 10 symptoms, 2 out of 10 symptoms. You know, so you're returning them to that functional activity, and you're also allowing them to maybe have some dizziness initially with it or maybe doing that activity without dizziness. Driving is another thing that is very difficult for vestibular patients, so I uh, commonly will write goals um, for driving. Um, Sarah, anything else to add in terms of goal writing? I mean, I think you made a great point on the first podcast, which is, you know, for for, patient, for therapists who are very used to these orthopedic patients to think about dizziness the same way you would think about pain. And you can also do that for goal writing, you know, um, performing these activities, like Rachel just said, with a certain amount of dizziness that makes a lot of sense to a therapist who's used to writing about performing a functional activity with, with a certain amount of pain. You can kind of get your mind around and think about it that way just a little bit. And I absolutely agree with asking the patient what's important to them. If they aren't working, what, what aspect of their job is keeping them from going back? If they aren't driving, what part of it is keeping them from driving? And trying to really get specific and then write these very specific goals that are geared towards them. And I find that also increases your, your compliance with the program and, and everything else you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one more goal that I forgot about since... So, and we will talk about this in the next podcast, which will talk about vestibular treatment. Um, but so much of the vestibular treatment hinges on the home exercise program that I always write a goal that patient is independent with their home exercise program. Absolutely, and compliant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Independent and compliant. Um, so, obviously, there's a lot of more information that we can talk about. We just don't have the time um, to do it today. So, I can't stress enough that vestibular rehab, um, you know, can seem very intimidating and very tricky, um, but it's just an area where I think it's a little bit beyond entry level. Um, if you are interested in becoming a vestibular therapist, uh, probably the best way to start is by taking a continuing education course, and if your finances allow, the APTA-sponsored um, vestibular competency course uh, t- is, takes place once a year in Atlanta, typically in the spring, March or April, um, it's a really great, excellent five-day course. Um, you know, I, I promise you I'm not getting any cut by recommending it, nor is Sarah. Um, but we have both taken the course, and it's been more than effective in terms of screening vestibular patients. If anyone asks me if, you, if they can't come to see me for vestibular rehab, if they say, who do you recommend? And I say, I would recommend any therapist um, without hesitation who has taken this course. It really does prepare you um, very well to um, 
be a vestibular therapist. Uh, Sarah, any other points in closing? I think I think we about covered it. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Sarah, very much for joining me today. Um, and stay tuned next month, and we'll touch on vestibular treatment. So what do you do once you evaluate these patients? They need to come back to you for treatment. Take care and have a good day.